Science. Science Po. Hello everyone and welcome to the next episode of our Sianspo research podcast, the podcast where I, uh, Sergei Guriv, the provost of Sianspo, talk to Sianspo researchers who work on the most important issues of our times. And we are in the second season of the podcast, the season where we talk about challenges to democracy, the rise of populism, the rise of authoritarian regimes. And today, I'm very happy to have with me Brenda Van Capinoli, the researcher in the Center of European uh, Studies at Sianspo. Brenda did her PhD at LSE, and then she was working as an assistant professor at Leiden, and then at Essex. But from May 2023, she came to Sianspo to work on her ERC project, Political Lotteries. Brenda has done work on political dynasties and political lotteries, which is uh, which may so- sound abstract, but it's actually a very pertinent issue for selecting leaders, selecting politicians who can actually stand up to those challenges of democracies that I mentioned. So to start with that, let's talk about political dynasties first. What are the political dynasties and how do they emerge, Brenda? Yes, so um, political dynasties um, can be defined as um, elected individuals who have relatives in parliament before or after them. So relatives by either blood or marriage, close family links. And um, so some examples that uh, may be familiar are, of course, the, the, the big, well, familiar names, um, such as the Kennedys or the Bushes in uh, the US, or, you know, in the UK, where I used to work, um, the Millibans uh, and the Johnsons recently. Um, and so... Families are common, of course, in all types of professions, but they seem to be particularly common in politics, which is a bit of a puzzle because uh, in democracies, of course, we uh, expect uh, elected legislators to have won um, competitive elections. Yeah. Yeah, uh, In addition to those examples, we can mention Justin Trudeau who also has a mm-hmm. father who's, a, who's been an important That's politician right. in Canada. We can mention Kirchners in uh, Argentina. Of course, people usually think about monarchies or quasi-monarchies like Kims in North Korea or Aliyevs in Azerbaijan. Now we have uh, uh, in Turkmenistan also we are moving to the son of the, uh, of the, of the leader. But uh, it is interesting that you have that in democracies as well. And so the question is, why why do we think political dynasties emerge? What is so special about being born into a political family which equips you uh, with winning tough competitive elections in a democratic country? Yeah, this has always been a very fascinating research question to me too. Um, and so the question I've always had is how common are these examples that we are so familiar with? Um, how uh, different should we expect democracies to be? And there's actually a lot less systematic research to answer that question than you would expect. So um, recent in recent years, we have more and more data to understand how common they are in different uh, countries and over time. Um, we know, of course, that uh, dynasties or families in politics are very common in all kinds of professions, as I mentioned, for uh, many different reasons. It could be that people are motivated for the same types of, uh, or interested in the same types of things. Um, they are socialized in a certain way. Um, and of course, that leads into the professional choices that they make um, later on. Um, but um, to answer the question of how common they are in, in, in democracies, it's important to um, compare them in different uh, systems and across uh, time. 
And recently I wrote um, an overview uh, chapter with uh, Dan Smith in um, the Oxford Handbook of uh, Historical Political Economy, where we identify three broad patterns of decline. So the first broad pattern of decline is exactly as you said, in terms of these um, um, hereditary monarchies or family-based dictatorships across countries uh, in the world over time. Um, so with a decrease in those types um, of regimes, we see an increase in uh, representative democracy. A second broad pattern that we can observe is a decline in political dynasties within elected parliaments. So we see um, a decrease in the number of individuals who are related to each other in uh, representative democracies over time, along with the institutionalization of parties, except in contexts where parties are particularly weak or elections are very personalized. And the third pattern is a gendered pattern. So we see a decline in gendered dynastic uh, representation, observing that maybe if in at first step, it can be a useful way for women to break through barriers. Over time, we see a decline in the advantage of being from a particular political family. As a scholar of non-democratic regimes, I think this, uh, I find this gender dimension very interesting because many non-democratic regimes are very male chauvinistic. And so if a dictator doesn't have a son, that actually ends the political dynasty. This is what we've seen, for example, in Kazakhstan. And we may see something like this in Russia where Mr. Putin doesn't have sons or at least legitimate sons. So it's going to be a very interesting uh, discussion after Mr. Putin departs. Uh, so uh, for me, the question is always, I think it's a good news that uh, uh, dynasties declines, but the question is why? So you, you are describing describing the decline of dynasties in democracies, but uh, before talking about why the decline is happening, let's talk about why decline is good. What is so bad about persistence of political dynasties? answer because I think in any particular situation, there's no reason why a dynastic uh, politician would be um, less capable or less um, less good at representing um, uh, his electorate or her electorate than any other uh, equally qualified candidate. But it's a bit strange that in the aggregate, um, if you have high proportions of dynasties, um, then, you know, that brings up questions about representation and about how uh, different the elected political elites are from um, regular citizens. And um, that's the important question, I think. I think this really, this really matters. And this is what uh, political scientists call a paradox of democratic leaders. We live in challenging times. We want our politicians to be very competent, go through universities like Sciences Po and learn a lot of things. On the other hand, we want our politicians to be in touch with voters, with ordinary people. And if you are brought up in an elite family, go through elite uh, school, work in the politics right away and never work anywhere but in politics, that of course creates this gap between politicians and voters. And this gap is the best uh, best opportunity for populists to say elites are detached. Elites don't represent us normal people even though in France we also have a political dynasty in the populist party, which is now called National Rally. Marine Le Pen is a daughter of the previous uh, uh, leader of that party. And uh, another member of that family, uh, uh, Marion Marichal Le Pen, is also a very active politician. Uh, but in any event, I think, uh, I think it is quite obvious that this dysfunctioning system where to become a politician you'd better be born in a successful political family, 
it's great for populists within democracies, but it's also good for autocratic leaders. As a scholar of spin dictators, I can confirm that uh, people like Putin are always extremely happy to point out that there is this dynastic dimension in uh, Western democratic system. And he says, look, democracy doesn't function in the West as well. They just lie better. They just pretend better. We are new to this game of pretending that we have a competitive uh, political system. But they're very good because American democracy is working for 200 years and there are Clintons and Bushes who alternate in the system, just learn how to alternate better and pretend that this is a competitive election. And in that sense, it's also not just an opening for populists, but also opening for dictators who use this narrative domestically saying, look, there is nothing wrong with our system. It's, it's as bad as American system. They just pretend better. And in that sense, I fully agree with you that it is dangerous. But talking, talking about why the decline, when you de describe the decline, what are the factors uh, uh, be behind this good news that political dynasties are uh, fading away? Yeah. So, so first of all, I agree with you that um, having more information about this is really crucial and just getting to the data, first of all, to be able to counter these types of claims is really important. And even that was not so straightforward until recent, you know, recent years, because now we can have large data sets we can compare across countries and time and we can collect information, which was not always available. But as a researcher, your second question of why do dynasties rise, um, that's one is maybe even trickier to answer, you know, because not only do you need the information to compare across countries and time, you also need to have good research tools to understand why um, do dynasties arise in different contexts over time? And I think there's a bit of a danger here of thinking that because democracies have in the past evolved um, in the typical examples that we know in a certain way, that it's going to be always like this because we've just had one draw of history and there might have been very other things that could have happened if small factors had been different. So it's really tricky to answer the question why they arose. Um, and research tools can be very crucial in, in helping us to get at that question. Now, one reason, of course, and you also touched on this, why um, they have uh, declined in, in recent years is because of the typical argument of modernization. So um, society has modernized, more people have access to running as candidates, more people have access to excellent uh, education, as you mentioned, for example. So to become a high quality candidate is something that is much more available um, to people than it used to be historically um, in the 19th century, which I've studied a lot. So um, by broadening um, the pool of potential uh, candidates, you um, automatically um, go away from um, um, dynasties that share typical talents and motivation um, and therefore end up in these positions because they are good candidates. I think if we try to understand why um, dynasties emerge, we need to say something about elections, um, because elections in representative democracies are designed for voters to select the best candidates for them. They are interested in selecting who will best represent their interests. And uh, that does not only depend on who um, understands and knows them best, but also who they believe will best argue for them once they arrive in the game of politics. Um, so voters select on very good um, qualities uh, in candidates. And I think there are many reasons to believe that political families may have an advantage here. 
Yeah, uh, so I, I, I fully agree with this modernization argument. And uh, as a scholar of uh, social media and um, broadband internet, I also have read lots of uh, stuff and speculations and also have seen a lot of evidence that the recent rise of transparency, radical transparency that we have in the 21st century in particular, created this unforgiving attitude of voters towards politicians. And if you are a member of a political dynasty, you may presume that uh, you will always serve, uh, your career is protected by the very fact that you come from a political family, but the reality has changed. And sometimes the voters are too critical uh, regarding politicians, but at least we have this, uh, what uh, uh, what the author Martin Gury has written in his book, Revolt of the Public. We now have the public, which has access to much more information because of internet, because of social media. Sometimes these criticisms are false, and yet uh, any single act of very small corruption, which would be okay 50 years ago, is no longer okay because voters can see it, and being a member of political dynasty no longer protects you. So this modernization technological progress argument is right there, and voters are much more active punishing Politicians who are sometimes complacent, being brought up in a family with a silver spoon in their mouth, uh, in a political family which protects them, are no longer protected uh, from criticism. And in that sense, in that sense, um, uh, that's a welcome change, I guess, uh, this uh, rise of accountability. So the, the other question which you address in your research and which helps uh, with the methodological challenges that you mentioned is that different democracies have different electoral systems, different institutional design. And to what extent uh, do you think what you find in your research, uh, these rules matter? What is the institutional design which is better for political dynasties and which is uh, more... Um, more critical, more more difficult for political dynasties to persist? Again, a very important question that is hard to answer because there's not one single set of institution which, institutions which uh, works best. Um, I think different combinations of institutions lead to different equilibriums um, between uh, what I'd like to call the demand and supply uh, factors um, of political dynasties. So on the one hand, you have voters who, for reasons I mentioned, um, are often uh, in favor of specific uh, political dynasties, uh, at least, even if they don't particularly like this phenomenon in general. Um, for particular candidates, there are very good reasons often to uh, prefer them. And you can see this. So if you have a system where people can express preference votes, you very often see that they vote in higher proportions for uh, candidates from political families, for example. There are many reasons why this could be the case. And one that's been argued uh, and, and has been shown in the literature is that's because um, they have an informational advantage. So if you have a large number of new candidates, then simply coming from a family tells you something about what you can expect from this individual, what they will stand for, what their ideals are, and what you might expect them to do for you uh, once they um, arrive in parliament. So these are sort of the demand side factors um, of why voters would prefer um, dynastic candidates. On the supply side, there are many reasons why um, people from families uh, where politics has been important uh, decide to go into the, into the profession um, or decide to pose their candidacies. Um, Sometimes it's uh, because they've been socialized or motivated, but also because they have been um, um, a, a they have uh, certain educational achievements or because they have certain networks, um, sometimes also a specific motivation, right? If your family has been involved uh, in politics and 
has received uh, death threats or worse, then you know you have a particular motivation to be in politics as well. And so there's an interplay between these factors and also the extent to which parties decide to um, to um, to answer to those things by promoting these people in the selection process, uh, in the um, electoral process or in the campaigns, and later on when they decide about promotions. On the other hand, I also thought it was interesting that you mentioned um, this um, dynasties can be more independent. So you can also see that when a system, when some institutions uh, don't work particularly well as you would expect them to, sometimes dynasties can form this additional check um, on the executive um, to uh, sort of um, uh, be there where institutions fail. So it's not always a bad thing, dynasties. Um, can you provide an example where uh, dynasties can uh, be a check, uh, provide an additional accountability device? Well, um, not maybe not necessarily an example, but there is research showing, for example, that where there have been more political dynasties in the past regionally, um, you have less economic inequality even today. So there are these long-term persistence effects. Um, there's other research that shows that um, political dynasties are sometimes the only groups in parliament that can stand up to executives who are trying to uh, power grab um, uh, in the legislature. Um, so sometimes they can form good alternative checks. Um, but the real question is, what have been these institutional shifts whereby that role that was traditionally um, uh, taken care of by different families in elite competition uh, can be institutionalized in a broader representative democracy where different um, organized interests have access to this, uh, to this process where they can hold the executive accountable? So what you are talking about is a local capture by, by political dynasties, which uh, produce a federalist uh, system of checks and balances against the against the central power and therefore a power grab. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is this is what we observed in Russia in 1990s, where um, local leaders were very powerful regarding the central power, and so we did have some freedom on the central level. While Mr. Putin has managed to crush this uh, local opposition and created a one-leader personalistic uh, system. So I, I very much, I very much like your distinction between demand and supply for economists. It's always an issue to understand where the changes coming from demand side or yeah. supply side, and uh, methodologically is never easy. Uh, but on the descriptive level, do we see more dynasties in uh, personalist in uh, presidential systems? On a descriptive level, do we see more dynasties in presidential or parliamentary systems? Do we see more dynasties in majoritarian or proportional systems? Is there research on this? That's still very much an open question because we we would need a lot of information to really give a very good answer to that. Um, what you know what we do have some research on is, for example, um, something I did myself in the past was that um, in the UK, when um, the franchise was extended to a broader group of people and to a larger uh, section of society, that did not necessarily affect the position of dynasties, for example. So um, it's not just uh, um, affecting, if, it's not just the case that if you affect the demand side uh, in a way that you will automatically change this equilibrium. Something that did seem to have mattered is uh, redistricting, so really breaking up a constituency where a family probably has a stronghold. Um, or what other research has found as well is that, for example, term limits can be particularly bad choices because that encourages a family to have different relatives in different positions of power and to rotate them across positions. So it um, gives additional opportunities for capture uh, in that way. 
Um, so, but the answers are not simple. And it's also not the case that we should say just let's not have elections at all, because clearly elections are important. Um, for example, direct elections uh, lead to less dynasties than indirect elections, for example. But a lot of these questions are, are still open, I would say. Well, I lived, I lived in a country without free elections. I don't recommend having no free elections. It's, uh, it never ends well. But uh, to take your point seriously, let's indeed pass to the solution side. What can we do regarding improving political representation? We at Sianspo, we take this issue extremely seriously. One of the uh, elements of uh, our DNA is equality of opportunity, opening to people coming from diversity of backgrounds including uh, 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 refugees, including foreigners, including people from different countries. And I would just like to advertise a recent film about the true story of an Afghan refugee who comes to France and uh, uh, graduates from Sciences Po and now continues to work to help other refugees to study, to, to prosper. In Europe, uh, this film called Ma France Amoa, which is a film based on the true story of uh, Afghan refugee student in Sian Spo and shows how, how we work on this issue to improve the diversity of uh, French political and business elite that we produce here at Sian Spo. Uh, at the political institutions level, there are various other uh, solutions, various other mechanisms, uh, such as citizens' assemblies, deliberative democracy. But you in particular, you work on political lotteries and your ERC project, uh, European Research Council project, is called POLOT, mm -hmm. <laughs> which stands for political lotteries. So what are they historically? Who has used uh, political lotteries? How did they work and how do they work now? So um, political lotteries um, randomly select either citizens or legislators to do something, to take a political decision, for example. And um, they've been used throughout history in all kinds of different combinations, um, but they've also been used more recently um, in uh, the most famous examples being exactly these citizen assemblies that you've mentioned. So people have probably heard about initiatives such as La Convention Citoyenne pour le Climat, or uh, Pour la fin du vie, um, which took place here in France. Uh, whereby in English, it's uh, Citizens Assembly for the Just uh, Environmental Transition and the, uh, the uh, Citizens Assembly for uh, Pension Reform. Exactly. Um, so, um, um, so what in those cases, what happens is that citizens are randomly drawn from society and invited to participate in an assembly where they are asked to debate important, divisive and polarizing issues of our times. And they've been used successfully um, across uh, countries and for many uh, years now to address important questions such as um, abortion reform, um, such as uh, polarization, uh, such as climate change uh, and so on. Um, and so they're, they're becoming increasingly popular. Um, there are also um, other types of initiatives whereby it's not citizens who have been uh, randomly selected, but there are combinations of elected legislators and citizens in, for example, committees, as is currently being experimented in the Brussels Parliament, or with randomly drawing citizens and placing them in a separate chamber, uh, which is being trialed in uh, the German-speaking community in Belgium. I think it's uh, very important to distinguish those various experiments and uh, just to explain while um, 
political lotteries may be both for citizens and for politicians. When we talk about citizens' assemblies, like the ones you mentioned or the other examples, we are now really, really have tens of experiments like this in the last uh, 10, 20, 30 years. And uh, OECD's uh, public governance uh, directorate recently published a survey of those attempts. There is also an excellent book six years ago uh, called Il Against Elections, which actually traces back citizens' assemblies back to ancient Greece, uh, where citizens also were selected by a lottery to make decisions. And this is where I think there is an important distinction between people who propose and people who decide. In most recent citizens' assemblies, most recent deliberative uh, democracy experiments were to randomly select ordinary people who then work together talk to each other, talk to politicians, talk to, talk to experts, and make a proposition, uh, make a proposal to the parliament members, but don't decide themselves. Mm -hmm. In a sense, this is a participative, uh, deliberative democracy, but it's, it's, still, it's still a consultative vote. It's not, it's not really a decisive vote. So to what extent do you think the fact that we select randomly the citizens who propose but not decide... Mm -hmm resolves the problem of political representation. Here in France, many people were disappointed when President Macron had read the report of uh, one of the citizens' assemblies, but uh, did not implement it in full. To what extent do you think this is a problem for political representation? This is a real problem in experimenting with these assemblies in our present-day representative democracies where legitimacy really relies with elected legislators. And it's very hard to think about, um, I mean, all people involved with the best intentions have a hard time to figure out how those uh, different elements can work together. How can um, randomly selected citizens uh, take decisions which maybe go against what elected legislators want and vice versa. So I think what is really important to help understand how political lotteries can be helpful um, in addressing polarization in our democracies is to understand how they work. So to really understand how political lotteries help to depolarize debates. And that's what the research grant really wants to understand. And the way to do that, or the way that I will do that, is to look at historical examples, because they have been used in the past uh, in different uh, places. Uh, people always go back to ancient Athens, but there are much more recent examples um, where political lotteries have been used in actual political contexts and have mattered for the political decisions that were taken in the end. And so we can learn from these examples to understand how lotteries work, what the mechanisms are, to understand how to design these um, uh, different institutions today so that they can work and strengthen each other. So when we talk about the examples, which, ex which examples do you have in mind? So um, I worked in the past on, for example, the French Third Republic after 1870 and how they used a procedure in Parliament whereby they randomly selected legislators and put them into different groups um, that prepared uh, legislation. And there in specifically what these groups were tasked uh, with doing is to appoint members to the important budget committee. Um, and in that article, um, we showed uh, that... Um, People who are randomly selected and then um, elected in these groups to serve on the budget committee um, gain experience and that builds into their future political careers. 
Yes, uh, this is this is very important. This this thing about experience and knowledge that uh, those uh, what we now call mini publics. So we don't have all the voters deciding or all the parliament deciding, but we have a mini public, a smaller group of people, which is still representative because it's randomly selected. This group of people has more time to deliberate on a specific issue. And this is, I think, is a very important aspect that people often forget that when most of people uh, show up for voting, they don't really have time or don't want to invest their time and effort in understanding the complex issues of our times. And this is where political lotteries can actually help identify a small group of people who are tasked with investing their time and understanding issues like budget issues. As, a, as an economist, I can tell you yeah. that there are very few people in each country who understand the budget in detail. And yet, uh, members of parliament vote, and yet voters vote for members of parliament knowing that they will not have time to read thousands of pages of the national budget every year. And so that, that becomes a, a real challenge. In the end of our podcast, we usually uh, ask a question, what would you do if you rule the world, or in, in this particular case, if you run a country, for example, if you uh, write a constitution, if you want to propose an amendment to a constitution, if you want to uh, propose certain new mechanisms for making political decisions, uh, what would be your advice? I understand that your project just started, so you don't have all the answers yet, but thinking in terms of speculations and hypotheses and also your previous research, what would you recommend to the world as a researcher of this important issue? Many people believe that what is missing in our current representative democracies is this element of lottery. They go back to the earliest examples of ancient Athens to say, well, lottery is a very important part of democracy. It's the essence of democracy. It's the essence that regular citizens can access um, the political decision-making process and influence those decisions. I think one of the most important things is to make sure that people don't feel perpetually excluded as a minority and that they are involved in this political decision-making process. I'm not sure that political lotteries are the best way to do it, but I think they hold a lot of potential in certain situations where there's high conflict, high distrust, um, where um, the lines of conflict haven't stabilized yet into clear uh, parties that can make these choices, as you say, very transparent and clear to voters so that they can offer a clear choice to voters. Um, this is where I think political lotteries may have a role to play in opening up that uh, decision-making process in opening up the selection so that um, the people involved can be from a more diverse background. But also, in terms of the debate, to force a majority, a numeric majority, who can force through decisions, uh, to force them into a debate with minorities. Um, as you say, because lots of politicians take decisions very quickly without knowing all the details. So simply by adding unpredictability to that process and forcing them into a conversation um, with reasonable people who have uh, important things to add um, might be very beneficial and even crucial um, in democracies to make sure that people don't feel uh, excluded. Thanks. Uh, I would like to close the, this uh, conversation, but you raised uh, a number of very, very important issues. And coming back to the issue whether politicians can actually say no to the proposal uh, 
elaborated by citizens' assembly, by randomly selected uh, citizens. We've seen that in some countries, it's very hard to say no exactly for the reason you just mentioned, that politicians understand that randomly selected ordinary voters actually represent, represent the mass of voters, the population of voters, better than the politicians themselves. And one of the examples I always give is the link between U.S. Congress and U.S. public. In the U.S., a very important uh, um, uh, factor of success in life is college degree. And uh, almost every single member of Congress has uh, at least one degree. Uh, most of the Senate members have advanced degrees, but uh, almost 100% of uh, U.S. Congress members, uh, House of Representatives, uh, have a college degree, while only minority of voters, about 40% of voters, have a college degree. So you have this disconnect a lack of representation, and politicians know that. And in that sense, I, I fully agree with you. It's very hard to say no. But you also mentioned the issue of exclusion. To what extent the voters feel excluded when they see that politicians don't represent them? To what extent those lotteries actually convince people that it's not me, but it could have been me. I could have been chosen. To what extent in your research you see that people perceive political lotteries as a legitimate fair mechanisms. Because in, in, in many contexts, people think that luck or lack of luck is something bad. We want to do meritocracy. We want to do something where we actually uh, design a better solution than just luck. When people say, this guy got rich because he was lucky, that's not actually positively connotated. It's almost like uh, this guy didn't get rich because he worked hard. Right, and to, the, to what extent do you think there is this legitimacy which comes from political lottery is the case? There will probably always be a tension because people like to take the decision in hand. They like to have good reasons for making a specific decision, and lottery is inherently frustrating in that sense. Um, and so, for that reason, also there's there's no examples ever that I know of <laughs> of political decisions being taken randomly. Like we don't do that. We put it into a process in a very clearly institutionalized way. Um, so the role of lottery will always be um, sort of. On the site, I think, like sort of in the in the in in the in the margin, um, in um, drawing in people. But I think yes, there is a real danger in um, presenting this as the solution to every problem, um, because it will always matter on how it is incorporated to make sure that um, the process is not captured. First of all, um, to make sure that uh, people um, respect the decisions that are taken by randomly drawn citizens. Um, that um, people feel like it could have been me being drawn. Um, so these decisions are important and I might as well have been there. One of the most um, clear um, results is that people who have been part of the process become much more politically engaged afterwards. And that's one of the nicest things to see and maybe one of the best reasons to um, uh, argue in favor of these assemblies um, because it re-engages citizens and it makes them care about politics again and makes them feel like what they what they believe matters uh, and has influence. At the same time, there's this danger where we really need to understand um, in what way they can be useful and can be best designed because we don't want to give the impression that this is a, a magic um, solution that will uh, fix all our problems. Um, yeah, one other parallel that I would like to draw on is juries. Uh, yeah. When we uh, decide on things like life and death, when people are in front of the court 
in many ways we just say these people have to be judged by their peers even if these peers don't have law degrees exactly. even if these peers are not police investigators if, if they are not well trained we still rely on randomly picked uh, citizens and this is widely accepted and people think that this is fair right and uh, and these are issues which are sometimes in terms of individual destinies are much more consequential than issues uh, yeah. issues that are discussed by citizen assemblies right yeah and so that that you think is a is a good argument also to convince people that uh, political lotteries deserve uh, deserve attention and deserve uh, being proliferated for many other issues as well I think from a theoretical perspective, uh, there have been um, made very good arguments um, also by people here at Sciences Po um, of uh, some of the problems uh, that might exist with elections and with uh, lotteries. So I think we can learn a lot from it. And personally, I think a lot of those um, suggestions are open to tests by empirical researchers. And if we think about which issues should be tackled by uh, lotteries, you mentioned uh, you mentioned polarizing issues such as gay marriage, abortion, uh, just uh, environmental transition, pension reform, which is which uh, is also a very controversial issue in any society, in every society, and of course in France. What are the characteristics of issues that we should address uh, by lotteries and citizen assemblies? The issues of our times that are highly divisive, that have very important redistributional um, implications and where we really require um, people engaging in the conversation, coming together and supporting the consensus, um, um, supporting a consensus of how to deal with these problems. Um, and um, a lot of these things have not necessarily formed part of the politics of the past. And that's what makes it tricky because we want to um, engage everyone today. Um, but we can learn from the past and see how they have addressed their very highly divisive issues and how lotteries have maybe helped them and we've forgotten about it. Thank you very much, Brenda, for this uh, optimistic and constructive view. Uh, there are plenty of issues like this. Pretty much all political issues are issues which have uh, uh, distributional consequences, uh, issues which are controversial. If issues are already decided by consensus, we don't need neither lotteries nor parliaments. Technocrats can solve them. And in that sense, political lotteries probably have a very bright future. That's it for today. Please stay tuned. Next time, we'll continue talking about challenges to modern democracies with other Sciences Po researchers. Science. Science po.